You guys can open up to uh, Matthew chapter 12 this morning. That's where we'll be. Uh, in our passage this morning, we are jumping kind of into the middle of an interaction that was already going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, you might recall from, from last week that the religious le- leaders, the Pharisees, they just witnessed Jesus performing these amazing miracles, and, and yet they accused him of being in league with Satan in order to be able to accomplish what he did. Uh, the Pharisees give us kind of an example of those who, who think they're right, they think they're on God's team, doing God's will, but in fact, they're playing for the opposing team. They're actually against God and leading people away from them. And the really scary thing is they, they probably don't even realize it. Kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. If you remember Paul, how committed he was to crushing Christianity, thought he was doing the will of God until a voice from heaven comes and says, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So, so he went from you know, being completely convinced one minute of one thing to to realizing he was completely wrong the next minute. And of course, this still exists today. We, we see people who say they're speaking on behalf of God and that their way is the right way. They're quick to tell you who and what to believe, uh, who and what to accept, and who and what to avoid. I don't know if you kind of see everybody's an expert today, and everybody has a platform to dispense their, their wonderful knowledge for you. And, and, and so this is kind of the world we live in. And people seem to be quick to believe them as well. They, they're quick to listen to what they say. But something doesn't add up at times. When what they say and how they act doesn't align with God's word and with God's character, we need to wise up a little bit. We need wisdom and discernment so that we're not led astray. Because whether these people intend to or not, they might actually be leading people away from the one that can save them or save other people. Um, so, for example, what we see in, in chapter 12 with Jesus and the Pharisees is we see him doing these amazing things. He mercifully heals a, a man with a withered hand, glorifying God. You would think that would be such an exciting thing to see. But immediately, the religious leaders come in and say, whoa, 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 that's, he did that on the Sabbath. And they accuse him of sin. They accuse him of breaking God's law. And then we see Jesus again glorifying God by healing a demon-possessed man who was also blind and mute. And the people's reaction, it tells us, the text um, tells us that the crowd who witnessed it, it said, and all of the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? They're thinking this could be the Messiah. And then the religious leaders swoop in again and like, oh, whoa, 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 no, no. No, this man is of Satan. He's evil. Don't listen to him. You know, it's just funny how this works, but they were completely convinced. And at the same time, they were completely wrong. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to help us to identify those who are from God and those who are against God by using the analogies of of trees and their fruit. And hopefully this will help us to to make the same important distinction today. As I thought about the trees and the fruit and all this, it took me back to my childhood. Uh, Every summer, we used to go to my grandparents' cabin in McCall, Idaho. They had this little, I thought it was huge, but in retrospect, it really wasn't that big. Um, Cool log cabin on the lake with one of those wooden screen doors with the spring on it. You know, that one that, you know, it would... If you know, you know, it's just that, and I still hear that. Um, but every year we would go there and, and there were huckleberry bushes and other, other wild berry bushes all around. And one of my greatest, fondest memories is picking huckleberries and then grandma making huckleberry pancakes. And if you didn't eat breakfast this morning, I'm sorry, but just like, oh, huckleberry pancakes were the best. But every year we'd get there, we'd get the speech. Parents would gather us all around and they would let us know. There are, there are good plants that will produce good fruit and there are bad plants that will produce bad fruit and you need to know which is which because if you eat something from a bad tree or a bad plant, it's going to make you sick. 
And so we, we got that every year. And this is important because much of what the Pharisees were producing seemed good. It had an appeal. And I remember specifically this little red berry in McCall that would grow on these trees. They were just bright red berries. They looked delicious. They were super poisonous. So that was the one that they would always warn us about. And this is true of, of people out there as well. We need to learn to distinguish good trees from bad trees. And we also need to, to understand what makes a person a good tree or a bad tree. And so this is kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning as we dive into verse 33. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. So like I said, we're coming in mid-conversation. But this is what he says. <clears throat> Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay, Jesus starts out by saying, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its tree bad. He's calling them out for wrongly identifying him as a bad tree when everything he produced was so obviously good. And conversely, he, he's also calling them out because they, they were claiming to be good trees and everything they were producing was continually bad. You would think it wouldn't be hard to figure out this kind of stuff, but, but people seem to really struggle <laughs> in this area. And I don't know if it's because, I don't know, right now in our, in our world, we're living in like a deep fake world where it's really hard to determine what's true and what's false and what's real and what's not. It's getting harder and harder to, to discern these things. You know, we have to kind of be continually skeptical of everything we hear and see so we don't get fooled, right? So how do we distinguish the good from the bad and the real from the fake? Jesus is saying, pay attention to the fruit. The fruit will tell the story, <laughs> okay? Everything Jesus produced made it crystal clear what team he was on, who he was playing for. And so you would think that this would be obvious, but it begs the question, how could the Pharisees get this so wrong? How could they be convinced that they were pleasing God when they were opposing it? And if they could do it, is it possible that we could do, it, do the same thing? The Bible in Jeremiah 17.9 tells us something about our hearts. And it says this, it says that the human heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. And this is, this is the reason that they were able to do this. This is how the Pharisees and people today are able to deceive themselves into thinking they're doing the will of God. And the way that you, they do this, it's just, you know, it's kind of fascinating to watch. You, you create kind of a moral high ground, something that has the appearance of godliness uh, and looks pretty good. That's how you start. Now, if you dig a little deeper, you'll realize something doesn't add up pretty quickly. You know, you have to ask some questions. And this is, these are the things that we as Christians need to do. We need to ask some questions. What is their goal? And what are they concerned about? Are they concerned about the glory of God? That will come out in the fruit. Is their goal to see people reconciled to God through the gospel? And, and, and are they, is their goal to prepare people for the coming kingdom? That will come out in the fruit that's produced. But conversely, if what they're all about is their own glory and their own power and their own position, their own pocketbook, their own legacy, these kinds of things, that will also come out in the fruit that's produced. So we have to pay attention to see if what they say aligns with their own interests or if it aligns with the heart of God and, and with, with what His Word teaches and His character. Because this is the, the fact of the matter is this, people will do almost anything to protect their position, 
their power, their way of life, their personal flourishing, and their own comfort. And, I, and I'd like to say I'm not guilty of it, but when it comes to especially my own comfort, I, I, you know, I really like it, and I'll, I'll fight for it because I want it. We see this um, when, we see, when we look at the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Uh, they, they would do anything to protect their power and their position. We see it today in our leaders. We see it in, in the media. And if you don't see it, you're not looking. It's just there. People will use any means necessary to, to win people to their side and, and to, to, you know, to their, their, their side of doing things because of what's at stake. So the media finds a way to keep you from tuning out or changing the channel, right? They have to. It's their livelihood. They need you on their team. So they'll fabricate the truth, right? They'll create hysteria just to keep you hooked. And it works. I see people walking around all the time. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> you, you get hooked easily, now, of course, they appear to have your best interest in mind. That's smart. But look at the fruit. Again, people will do anything to protect their way of life, and they will do anything to destroy those who threaten it. The Pharisees are an example of this. They were supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to be God's leaders. And they found a way to, to silence Jesus, murder him, because they challenged what they, what they, you know, what they had going. And they, and they did it in the name of God. That's the other fascinating thing. They created this moral high ground. They made it look like they were doing the will, the will of God while they were actually murdering an innocent man. It's kind of terrifying. We need to be careful that we don't get deceived because people are extremely crafty. And more than ever, we need to have discernment in this regard, especially when the narrative that they're selling lines up with the narrative that we so badly want to hear. All right? if, if it lines up with my personal desires and my preferences, we have to be even more careful. Because when that happens, we're quick to buy in and ignore the bad fruit that we see, right? Even to the point of being willing to condone really despicable behavior at times. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. Somebody can come across as rude, arrogant, mean, hostile, hateful. But if it aligns with what I want, I'm willing to kind of go, well, that's, you know, the ends justify the means. That's not so bad. I'll compromise quickly. I found that my, my ability to discern things properly is much more subjective than I care to admit. You know, if we're talking about something I like, it's like, well, that's, that's all right. You know, I'm willing to compromise. My discernment becomes very lax. If we're talking about something that I, that I don't like or something I'm not comfortable with, man, I get, I'm skeptical quick. I can, yeah, we need to, we need to shut that down. That's not okay. So for instance, this is a good example of this. Um, think about like an athlete or a celebrity, even a politician, somebody you really like, and the, the, the media reports that they become a Christian. If you like that person, you're immediately so excited. You know, they're on our team now, and you're, you're holding them up and saying, look at this guy, you know, look at Kanye, or look at Deion Sanders, or Bob Dylan, or whoever it is. This has happened over and over again. And we get super excited if we like them. And we're, we're you know, our objectivity kind of goes out the window. Right? But if we don't like them, we do the opposite. I don't, I don't, no, no, I don't think so. There's no way that guy's a Christian. You do that, right? This also can happen with a movement or an event. This just happened recently. I don't know if you guys were paying attention to what was going on at Asbury, this, this college campus in Kentucky. You had this revival that broke out. And, and somebody came in, preached what he said was a mediocre sermon. I think that's kind of funny. You know, he said it wasn't that great. And, and after he gets done preaching, the students won't leave. They stay, they sing, they pray, they confess sin, people are getting saved. It goes on for, you know, over 10 days or something like that. Crazy. Just amazing. Or was it? Depends on, depends on your, you know, if you're somebody who really wants to see revival and God's spirit moving, 
in people, you immediately put your stamp of approval on it and say, That's, God's doing something. But if you're one of those people that you know, doesn't like strange fire, you, know, <laughs> you, get a, you get a hose and a bucket real quick and say, let's, let's quench that. Let's stop that right now. Sorry, I was, <clears throat> if you know, you know. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Strange fire was a code word for somebody. But that actual pastor said this very thing. He said, this is chords over Christ. That's all that's going on here. It's just the music. Turn the music off and the revival goes away. That was immediately skeptical because they're leery of God's spirit moving. So, so you have both of these extremes. It's just funny how this works. So quick to put your stamp of approval, quick to discredit it. That's what we do. But here's the thing. Jesus says, examine the fruit, evaluate it, and let that guide our determination. Well, we need to keep in mind first, Jesus is our standard. He's the example of what good fruit looks like. So if we're going to evaluate if it's good fruit, he needs to be the standard we use. You also need to keep in mind that fruit takes a while to grow, correct? So give it a little time. You don't have to make a, an immediate judgment. You don't have to say, yep, this is what it, wait it, wait it out. Especially like a celebrity that becomes a Christian. Hey, let's see what's going on in six months. We'll find out more then. It's okay to watch before making a, a conclusion. We live in a soundbite world where you get a little bit of information and you form an opinion based on that. That's bad. That's a bad idea. You know, do some digging, find out what's going on. And then here's the really important part. Once you've done that, be willing to be honest with yourself about the outcome, okay? <laughs> no matter how much we want it to be true, whether it's a person or a movement, be willing to be honest about the outcome. If, if, if the tree is screaming, bad tree, bad tree, bad tree, don't ignore that, right? Don't, don't try to convince yourself, no, I think it's a good tree. <laughs> Everything about that tree is screaming bad tree. Let's label it properly. And it, because this is the problem. It doesn't help our Christian testimony when we're constantly pointing at bad trees and saying, no, I think they're good. It looks bad. It gives, it, it gives us a black eye. And we want to be on the side of God at the end of the day. So the Pharisees were calling Jesus a bad tree, even though his fruit was very good. And of course, they reckon themselves to be good trees, even though their fruit was very bad. So Jesus calls out their hypocrisy just by highlighting what they were producing in verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Brood of vipers, you know, sometimes Jesus has said stuff that you have to uh, kind of smile at because, you know, it's not like in the, you know, how to make friends and influence people, chapter one, this isn't in there, right? You brood of vipers literally means offspring of snakes, all right? That wouldn't have been lost on them. So in, in some ways, Jesus is kind of turning the tables. Remember, they just accused him of being you know, in league with Satan because of the miracles. And he's not so politely saying, oh, Satan's have a fa- he's having a family reunion here today, but it ain't me. You know, it's you guys. You're the, you're the, you know, you're the offspring of Satan. Um, and this is far more than Jesus doing the thing we used to do when we were kids. Like they insult him. And so he goes, I know you are, but what am I? We used to think that was the greatest comeback. You know, I know you are, but what am I? It's not that good. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually letting them know where they actually stand. He's telling them the truth about where they're at. Most people would never intentionally sign up to be on Team Satan. There there are some, but most people wouldn't. The Bible makes it clear, though, that that's the team you end up on by default. It's the state that man is in as a result of sin entering the world and breaking God's good creation, his good design. So remember when God created man, he said it was very good. And sin entered the world, and it broke everything. It made us all bad trees, and it put us on the opposing team. 
And I know no, most people don't like to think of themselves that way or see themselves that way, um, but, but it's really how God sees us that matters here. How does, how does God see us? And, and no, it's not exactly flattering. This is the way God describes fallen mankind in his word. These are the words that are used. So, you know, not a great list, but here it is. Evil, dead, blind, deaf, lost in rebellion, haters of God, wicked, and then what Jesus just called the Pharisees, children of the devil. That's harsh. And it sounds harsh, but again, it's kind of God to be honest with us about where we stand. Because when that reality sinks in, what should it do? It should cause you to fall on your face before God and say, what do I need to do to make this right? What do I need to do to be saved? How do I get reconciled to you? And then, of course, the good news is Jesus has provided us a way to flip that list. And I love this list. <laughs> this is a good list. If you, if you believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for you and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, this is the way God describes you. And just let this wash over you for a second. Redeemed, forgiven, beloved, holy, blameless, cleansed. We're called saints. That just blows my mind still. Part of it is my Roman Catholic upbringing, but saint? Yeah, saint. And then this one, children of God. You go from an enemy of God to somebody that is seated at his table as a family member. I mean, that's crazy. What a contrast. But praise God for giving us Jesus so this can now be our true identity. In verse 34, Jesus answered the question he posed to the Pharisees. How can you speak good? when you are evil. And he switches here from a tree analogy to a heart analogy. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's saying the makeup of our hearts determine what comes out of us. And he doesn't have things like, this isn't just like cuss words or, or things like that. Of course, that can apply, but this has more to do with our core beliefs, what we believe is true, what we think is right, our philosophies, our biases, our prejudices, all of these things. What, what is in the heart will, will eventually come out. And this is why when we look at the world around us sometimes and the things they believe and with all their heart and the things they say, we think they're crazy. What's going on? Well, no, out of the heart, their mouths are speaking. This is what we're seeing. We're just seeing what's really there. And we've all seen examples of people who've had too much to drink. And uh, we've watched that filter between the heart and the mouth kind of come out. You find out what's really in there, don't you? It's like, wow, that's gross. Uh, I can think of a couple of celebrities that you never knew. It's like, wow, they're full-blown racist. Well, who knew? Well, something happened and it came out. It was there in the first place, though, or it wouldn't have come out. That's the problem. People always say, oh, I was drunk. That's why it came out. No, it was in there. It was there. It just, the filter went away. And this is what we see with the Pharisees. The abundance of the Pharisees' heart was unbelief, and their words revealed it. The abundance of the Christian's heart is belief in the Son of God, and our words reveal it. So the treasure of the unbeliever's heart is sin and self, but the treasure of the Christian heart is Christ. So when we become Christians, our hearts are rewired and reprogrammed, and unless that happens, we cannot become good. So, so we don't need a makeover. We don't need a little fixing up, a little touch-up. We need a completely new heart. We need to be turned into something else, a new creation, born again, regenerated, you know, whatever term you want to use, um, God has to put the defibrillators on us spiritually, say clear and bring us to life or, or we will, we'll, we'll, you know, so the assumption then is that once that's happened, 
Once God has made you a new creation and he's written his law on your heart and he indwells you through the person of the Holy Spirit, the abundance of our heart is now God. It's funny to think the Holy of Holies. There. Amazing. So the big point that Jesus is making so far is this. People act according to their nature. If a person remains in their fallen nature, they are a bad tree that produces bad fruit. If a person trusts Christ and becomes born again, they are a good tree, and good trees produce good fruit. Only Jesus can turn us into good trees. But the astute person will speak up and say, that sounds great, but then why do I see non-Christians doing good and Christians doing bad? That's a great question. I'll admit that if we only use deeds as the determining factor here, it can get a little bit muddled. Um, Part of that is because there is good in the sight of man and there's good in the sight of God. And they're not necessarily the same thing. The way man defines good, even in our day and age, and the way God defines good, totally different. So we're not always defining things the same way. Agreeing on what's actually good can be tricky, but there are times when everybody agrees on on something that's good. Um, We would have to acknowledge there are times we see non-Christians doing good things. And I would argue that as image bearers of God, you know, he's, he's, he's put the Imago Dei, he stamped us with that. Everyone is capable of do, doing good, but not in a way that will save us, not in a way that will earn us favor with God or make us righteous. So we might see somebody holding a door open for somebody or helping an old lady across the street, you know, or even something more extreme, like, you know, somebody diving on a on grenade to, to save his fellow soldiers. And we would all say that's good. Those are good things they're doing. But we can't always be sure about these things. And this is the problem we run into when we try to define this stuff because only God sees the heart. He, he knows the motives. So somebody might give a giant donation to something. We would all say, that's good. But why did they give it? Did they do it out of the kindness of their heart or did they do it to impress people and get a pat on the back? We don't know. I, I, there's a, there's some, you know, Facebook is one of those things that is a kind of a necessary evil in my life. I have it for church stuff, but it drives me crazy. But there's people that... They seem to um, want to catalog their good deeds online. I don't know if you've seen these folks. You know, it's like they're doing good things all the time, but somehow there's always a camera present. It's like, how did that work? You know, it's like changing a lady's tire, you know, you know, to God be the glory. And it's like, really? Is, it, is that really what we're seeing here? Is, is to God be the glory or is this, is this to you be the glory? So deeds are important, but we can't rely on them to be the only determining factor. What's more important is knowing what kind of tree you are and knowing how you became that way, right? How do you become a good tree? We know we can't go from being a bad tree to being a good tree by just doing good works. I think that's the way most people think. Like, okay, I just need to produce, I need to be the best version of myself. I need to produce something. So you like try to produce fruit. You know, it says, if you're a bad tree, it's not going to happen. That's not the way it works. So if it did work that way, by the way, no need for Jesus to come. No need for the cross. No need for him to suffer and die. If you could produce enough fruit to become a good tree, he didn't need to come. So God's word makes it clear that even our best deeds in regards to trying to earn his favor are like filthy rags, right? That don't impress him much is is what we would say. They, They can't change the core of our makeup. They can't change our nature. And that's what we need in order to become good. So we need God to make us good. And he does that through Jesus, okay? So if this is true, it's a pet peeve time. If this is true, why do we expect fruit, good fruit, to come from bad trees? I understand why non-Christians expect to see good fruit in the life of a Christian. 
What I don't understand is why we expect to see it in theirs. And, and, and I see this happening all the time. I see Christians demanding Christian behavior from those who are incapable of producing it. So it'd be like going up to a corpse and saying, hey, do the jitterbug for me. Come on. You know, they can't. They can't do it. It's not going to work. The only way we can go from a bad tree to a good tree is to be born from above. That's how it works. Only the gospel can fix that. And that's what we need to be about. But instead of relying on the power of the gospel, we seem to be on a crusade to force people, you know, to be moral and to follow Christian principles. And while that might make for a nice society, I get that part. I like that part. Makes for a really comfortable place for me to live. It doesn't do sinners any favors. We're just nailing good fruit to to bad trees and then patting ourselves on the back for a job well done. It's what it amounts to. It helps us temporarily. It does nothing for their eternity. And this is why teaching moralism is so deadly. You know, just, just be better. Try harder. That's a good thing. No, it's not. I, 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 good, good is good. I, I like good, but, but understand that not only does that not save anybody, it gives people the illusion that they're a good tree when they're not. Do you understand that? Do you see that? <laughs> so instead, what we need to do is we need to lovingly let people know about their sin and about the judgment to come. That's the most loving thing we can do. We need to make sure they know what kind of tree they are. <laughs> That's not always easy to do. So, so the, my, my point is we don't want to simply force behavioral change. We actually want to preach the gospel to them so that they can have a genuine change of heart and be saved. That's what we need to do. But back to the question I brought up earlier, because you're probably thinking, you just skirted that whole thing. What, <laughs> what do we do with people who claim to be Christians but appear to be producing bad fruit? And of course, there is always the possibility that they aren't really born again. And, and I don't want to downplay this because there are a lot of people who place themselves under the banner of Christianity who have never repented of their sin, who have never confessed and bowed before Jesus as Lord. And, and 2 Corinthians 13 tells us to examine ourselves, to see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves. And this is important. Now, the implication is this. If Jesus is in you, you won't be able to miss it. Not, you won't be able to miss it and others won't be able to miss it. it. It's that big a deal. Now, that doesn't mean you never sin. doesn't mean you never blow it. I mean, I'm the first person to stand up and say, I, you know, I, I blow it a lot. It doesn't mean you don't say things you shouldn't. It does mean that there should be signs of life, fruit of the Spirit within you. So if the Spirit indwells you, we know the list, right? These are the things you should see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I can tell you that before coming to Christ as a 19-year-old, these things weren't present in my life. I mean, occasionally you might see something like, that looked like joy for a second, probably not, but these were not present. And then I met Jesus, and all of a sudden they started just popping up into my life. I'm like, where did that come from? What is that? That looks like love. That looked like self-control. Where'd that come from? Not me, right? And what I've seen is that these things have increased. The longer I've known Jesus, the more they've increased in my life. Not because of me, but because of him. And I wish I could tell you it was a straight line, like from 1986 to now. It was just like, but it's not. It doesn't look like that. You know, it's like up, down, up, up, down, down, up. You know, it's a pretty jagged looking line. But there have been, like, you see a trajectory. 
You know, and this is what you're looking for, hopefully, because here's the problem. You live with yourself, right? So you see yourself every day. You don't see the changes that are going on necessarily, but hopefully you can look back five years, 10 years and see evidence of the spirit within you. And hopefully the people around you can see it. If you can't examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. And if you're not seeing any of this, it could mean Christ is not in you. So Here's the cool thing. Paul says in, in one of his letters that we can be confident that the one who started a good work in us, the good work of salvation, will be faithful to complete it. He completes it. Of course, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. Right? That's the way sanctification kind of works. Uh, you, you know, we, we, can, we can do things to, to speed this process along and to help it. Uh, we should ask questions like, what are we storing up? What are we filling our hearts and our minds with? You've heard the old principle of garbage in, garbage out. If you, if you keep seeing you know, garbage going in, oh, what am I feeding you know, myself with? What, what's, going, what's going in all the time? Um, but as Christians, we're told to walk in newness of life, walk in the spirit, put on the new nature, all of these things. And so there are, God's given us ways to accelerate our, our sanctification by using the means that he's given us, the word, prayer, fellowship, service, all of these things. We know these things. But the amazing thing about God is that he is at work even when we're not. Praise God for that. So, so sometimes he does his best work in the valleys. And, and I know you guys know this. It's sometimes it's the hard times, the suffering times, the low times that he's just you know, making the most progress in it. So the good news is he is faithful even when we're not. But here's the, here's the, the, the kind of the big thing I want to make sure we understand. There is a greater, there's a, there's a theological reality to these things we're talking about, and there's a practical reality to these things we're talking about. And we tend to focus only on the practical reality because this is where we live and what we understand. So this has to do with our behavior, our fruit, our speech, things like that. And these are all part of our sanctification. But if we overly focus on the practical and, and forget about the theological, we can quickly end up pinning our salvation on what we do instead of what God does. So for instance, look at verse 36. This is Jesus again talking to the Pharisees. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now just that verse on its own sounds pretty terrifying, does it not? When you hear that, it's like, what, what, what did you just say? That sounds terrifying. If you separate it from the context, it sounds like Jesus just said, if you say good things, you'll go to heaven. And if you say bad things, you'll go to hell. <laughs> like, well, that's not good news for me at all. I have said far more careless things in my life than I have careful things. Even this week, I would say, um, if, the, if that's the criteria for getting into heaven, I'm not getting into heaven. Okay. Now, of course, we know that's not what Christianity teaches. We get into heaven based on the merits of Christ alone, not on ours. So, so this is good news, right? When we stand before God, he's not going to tally up our bad words and our good words and, uh, and then decide whether or not we get to go into heaven. So, right, you can breathe a sigh of relief now. It's like, oh, whew. So what does Jesus mean here? The bigger idea is this, that our words reveal what we've done with Jesus, okay? So there is a sense in which we will either go to heaven or hell based on the words that come out of our mouth, but not in the way I just described. So to understand this, we have to think back to the previous passage and what Jesus was dealing with there. Uh, the Pharisees were guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit when they said that Jesus was able to do miracles through the power of Satan. 
These are the careless words he's referring to in the context we're in. So there are words that we can speak that will justify us, and there are words that we can speak that will condemn us. So this is really referring to our confession. Um, The words that determine our eternity are what we say about Jesus. So there's a song we sing occasionally, and I, I love this song. It's not lyrically or musically necessarily great, but it's what it says. And I think it's called the creed or something like that, but this is it. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again for I believe in the name of Jesus. That is my confession. That's what's coming out of my mouth. It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at one point in in chapter 16. It's coming up. Uh, he, He started to ask them, who do people say that I am? You know, what are you guys hearing out there? What's the scuttlebutt, you know? Who are people saying that I am? And they start saying, oh, these people are saying this, and these people are saying that. And then he drills down to Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? And that's the question you need to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? The way you answer that determines eternity, right? This is what it all comes down to. Peter got this one right. He didn't always get him right, did he? But he got this one right. He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered back and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And with that confession, we are justified. Romans 9 or Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justified is one of the greatest words in the Bible. It simply means that God has declared you righteous. I don't know if you think about that. Think about your life. Think about what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. And to know that God has put his gavel down and said, not guilty, declared righteous, blows my mind. But this is what justified means. And he can do this justly because he takes Jesus' righteousness and imputes it to you, and he takes your sin and puts it on Jesus. This is the great exchange, right? This is what he does. He's able to do this. This is how he's able to make you a good tree. This is how he's able to to give you a new and good heart. It has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. It completely has to do with what God does. And once he does that, once you are justified, that is your positional standing before God. And that's why I said the theological, practica- the theological reality matters here. My heavenly standing before God is good. He has stamped that on me. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me, but he has. So when he looks at me now, it says that I am covered in, in his son's righteousness. And that's what he sees. So I'm good before him. And if the son makes you good... You are good indeed. That's not a real verse, but it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You're good because he's made you good. So, so once you've been justified, declared righteous by God, then, then you are sanctified, which is the process of being made righteous. But, but here's the thing. If we've confessed that Jesus is Lord, and, and if he is indwelling us, and all of this has happened, that we're, we become, he's made us good, that should come out in the things we say and the way we live. And that's really what, you know, this is the vine and the branches. This is what we read this morning. If you're connected to Jesus, this stuff should come out of you. And not just come out of you, but come out of his church as well. This is what we should see. So what we say and how we say it is extremely important. 
It doesn't affect our salvation, but it might affect somebody else's. You know, and, and I wish that we would think as Christians a little bit more. You know, we used to have bracelets that said, you know, WWJD. Maybe WWJS is a better one. What would Jesus say? Right? Because I, I hear stuff coming out of Christians' mouths sometimes that sounds so gross, hateful, wrong. You know, it's funny. James talks about the tongue and the power it has. It, it, you know, it, with the same tongue, you, you praise God. And then you, you, you curse his creation. You say bad things about people that he made. Well, we, need to, we need to watch this. You know, whoever said sticks and stones, that, that whole phrase, you know, might break my bones, but we're, they were full of hooey. I think I can say that. They, they were, malarkey might be better. They were wrong. I'll bet you right now, if, you know, if a stick got you, you know, in a couple of weeks, you wouldn't be thinking about it. But I bet you there are words that have been said to you in your life that you still remember today, that you're still carrying on, uh, holding on to. So we have an opportunity um, as Christians. Live like there's a, a hot mic next to you all the time, right? It's kind of a good way to think about it. Isn't that funny? It goes right back to the, what, you know, what's, what's in the heart will come out. These guys that are standing on a hot mic, they don't think they can be heard. You really hear who they are at that point, right? Well, people are listening to us all the time. What are they hearing? Colossians 4 says that our speech is supposed to be gracious and seasoned with salt. And, and I love that because the graciousness is kind of this, this, this salt. When, when you have salt in your mouth, there's no mistake in it. You know it's there. And when people hear gracious speech coming out of one of us, they, they hear it. It's hard to miss. So if you struggle with your mouth like I do, you know, there's a, there's a verse that talks about, you know, God post two guards by my mouth, you know, to make sure nothing comes out that shouldn't. I, I need to, to pray that prayer more often. I want, I want to make sure the things that I'm saying represent him well and that are words of life that others can hear and, and find out how they might come to him. Our speech should sound like our Savior. What we say should reveal him because people are watching, people are listening to see if our claims are real, to see if Jesus is real. And, and we have a tremendous opportunity um, you know, in the area of our speech, in the area of our conduct, all of these things, to let people know that Jesus is alive and well within us, and maybe that will be what draws them so that Jesus can become alive in them.